Hey, Art Curious listeners. Before we start, I want to give you a heads up that I have a brand new ebook out. Have you ever wanted to learn how to do what I do and create a successful podcast of your very own? Let me help you. In Podcast Perfection, the right questions and tools for starting a winning audio show, I take you step-by-step through the process of planning and executing your own audio show. This book is only available for purchase on Amazon, or you can read it for free with Kindle Unlimited. So check it out. Search for Podcast Perfection on Amazon right now and make it yours. That's Podcast Perfection on Amazon. There's an old quote that I'm sure you've heard referenced in a million sitcoms or Looney Tunes cartoons, though it actually stems from a 1932 Western where one character, all flinty-eyed, turns to another and declares, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. It's an order meant to scare someone away, but it's also a declaration of the feelings of rivalry, of jealousy, as if two people of similar structure or stature couldn't be functioning or even flourishing in the same place or time. After all, you couldn't possibly have two star quarterbacks on the team or two top valedictorians. Someone always has to be the best, or even more importantly, to be seen by the public as the best. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless, but the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today we are continuing our series on great rivalries in art history with two artists who weren't actually rivals at all, but whose unique positions in the art world made others believe that they were. This is the story of the non-rivalry between perennial art curious favorite Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Adelaide Labie-Guillard. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. I frequently return to the period of and around the French Revolution as a subject for this podcast because it is such a fascinating time, a whirlwind of change and shockwaves that reverberated throughout the world, changing it and driving further change to come. The art made during that time is also a personal favorite, and I get swept away in the drama of it all. The fervent emotion, the fluttering of neoclassical gowns, the solemn oaths, the violence. But I also come back to it again and again because of a few artists who rose above and beyond others, and who really should not have been able to reach the heights that they did, simply because they were women. Women artists have been traditionally undervalued. And as we mentioned in our earlier episode this season on Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning, the art world is essentially a man's world. So when women rise to the forefront, it's somewhat surprising, shocking even and the careers of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Adelaide Labie-Guillard are surprisingly impressive indeed. Adelaide Labie-Guillard's path to success was nothing short of extraordinary because it was so unlikely. Let's start with her upbringing. Most professional women painters were born into families of artists or artisans, the primary way for women to receive an authentic artistic career. But not Labie-Guillard, who was born to a Parisian shopkeeper and was not afforded the luxury of having these automatic connections to the art world. But Labie-Guillard was shrewd and smart, and so she did what lots of us do, even today, 
when we try to snag our perfect job. She began networking. By soliciting ideas and opinions from family, friends, and neighbors, she started small by getting involved in the quote-unquote feminine genres of miniatures and pastel painting before joining another childhood friend, Francois-André Vincent, in his studio. And that is where she was formally trained as an oil painter. In 1780, at the age of 25, Labie Guillard exhibited her work for the first time at the Academy of St. Luc, the esteemed Painters Guild of Paris that had long been a bastion of artistic pride since the 14th century. After that point, things really started picking up for her. She went on to exhibit her works at a few different locations, including a number of high-profile Parisian salons, and she worked feverishly to surround herself with plenty of well-established academics and artists. And luckily, her hard work and tenacity really paid off because finally, in 1783, she became one of only four women to be accepted to the Académie Royale, the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture. She became hugely involved in the Academy and exhibited every other year in the Academy Salon, the biggest art event of the year in Paris, and indeed all of Europe at that time. And she continued to do so until the Academy itself was disbanded in 1791 in the wake of the French Revolution. She was an integral part of the artistic landscape at the time, and her presence, like that of all women artists, was rare and extraordinary. The same year that she was admitted to the Royal Academy, Labie Guillard opened her very own studio on the Rue Richelieu, where she painted portraits and taught painting classes to nine students. To hold her own very active studio is impressive in and of itself, but what's more interesting is that all of her nine students were women. And it's this incredible facet, her commitment to teaching other women, that she chose to document in what is arguably her most famous and most important painting. Self-Portrait with Two Pupils, painted in 1785 and today in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, is an astounding, full-length, life-sized work depicting the artist sitting at an easel with two young women students standing behind her, not only watching, but also learning from her. What's equally cool about this work of art is that it acts as a historical document because we know the identities of the two students who are learning from their master, or is it their mistress? Their names are Marie-Gabrielle Capet and Marie-Marguerite Carreau de Rosemont, and both were among Labie Guillard's most promising students. Rosemont died in 1788, but Capet had a longer life and a very successful career as a neoclassical portraitist and miniaturist. Labie Guillard's triple portrait here is beautifully rich in detail, and it's so easy to get lost in all these little elements, such as the intricate folds of the artist's periwinkle dress, her students' demure yet excited expressions, and the tender care with which they embrace each other while their instructor looks out at us with confidence and pride. When Labie Guillard presented this work at the Salon of 1785, the same year it was painted, a critic declared that it was her most beautiful work, and it was one of the most exquisite paintings exhibited at the Salon that year. But it wasn't simply just a lovely work. It was also a rather meaningful one. By portraying herself in the mode of teacher and teaching only female students, Labie Guillard intended to make a point about the necessity of women's presence within the French Academy as both mentors and pupils. As such, it's a gorgeous piece of propaganda, and one that cut close to home for the artist herself. In 1783, when she was admitted to the Royal Academy, 
there was a set limit to the number of women even accepted into the academy. This painting was Labie Guillard's delicate way of pushing for more presence, more acceptance, and more equality in the arts. Adelaide Labie Guillard's status rose to its highest height in 1787 when she was named first painter of Louis XVI's aunts, the Mesdames Adelaide and Victoire. A huge honor to be sure, and one that affirmed her legitimacy as a professional painter. For two years, she benefited generously from having this highly sought-after position in the circles of the monarchy, achieving the level of status that not even many of her male colleagues had been able to claim. She painted not only the king's aunts, but also completed commissions for his sister and his brother, among other courtly clientele. Thus, she really had access to the good life. However, things changed rather drastically once the French Revolution commenced in 1789. Her clients, not only the king's family members, but also aristocratic and royalist sympathizers, dwindled as potential portrait sitters escaped France or were dispatched to the great beyond via the guillotine. Although she did manage to find some new clients who needed their visages commemorated, such as the revolutionary leader Maximilien de Robespierre, the demand for portraiture after the revolution was nowhere near what it once was. Nevertheless, Adelaide Labiguillard did not stop working, even if those jobs were fewer and far between. And even more fascinatingly, she didn't stop fighting for her own passion projects even amidst the drama and bloodshed of the French Revolution. In 1790, she proposed that women should be accepted to the Royal Academy as conciliers, or art advisors, an idea that was positively received but never fully enacted. As the revolution dragged on, though, she suffered further major career blows. First, she began to be criticized and shamed by other artists, including Jacques-Louis David himself, for that access to the monarchy and the lavish lifestyle that it had afforded her. In the midst of the reign of terror in 1793, she was given an executive order to turn over one of her paintings, a huge group portrait of the monarchy commissioned by the king's brother. And it was publicly incinerated in the name of revolution and progress. It was a terrible loss from which she never recovered, and she left Paris to sit out the remaining days of the revolution with a handful of students whom she convinced to escape alongside her including Mademoiselle Capet. In 1800, she married Vincent, her former mentor, after which she began signing her paintings with the caption, Madame Vincent. She died in 1803 after a long illness at the age of 54. The French Revolution and its after effects weren't the only things that were damaging in the life and career of Adelaide Labiguillard. The specter of a rival, an enemy, a competitor, hung over her in the public eye. But was this a real rivalry? And how did these two rival artists interact and intersect? That's coming up next, right after this break. I really love digging into topics that fascinate me so that I can get a better understanding and discover something new. And that's what I love to do with The Great Courses Plus. I love The Great Courses Plus, and I think that you will too, because The Great Courses Plus offers unlimited access to explore anything about everything. You can learn from leading professors and experts in their fields about thousands of topics, arts and literature, history, science. You can even learn a new language or how to play a musical instrument like the guitar. And you can also watch or listen anytime you want with The Great Courses Plus app. I want to recommend checking out one of their wonderful courses. 
This one is called A History of European Art. And take it from me, even for somebody like me who's already an art history buff, I still learned a lot because it shows everything, the full sweep of European art, from painting to sculpture and architecture, all the way from French Gothic architecture through the early Cubist phase. And it helps you investigate why each work of art was created and how it responded to the circumstances of its time. And because I want you to get this as soon as possible, I've arranged for a very special limited time offer for my listeners. You get a full month to enjoy all of their lectures for free. But to start your full month, you have to use my special URL. So sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Don't forget, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Sunny days are calling at ModCloth, and ModCloth's exclusive collaboration with Wrangler is all about fun 70s nostalgia. You can rock a pair of flares or a chambray top with these incredibly fun embroidery details. And don't forget that perfect swimsuit. And with ModCloth, you can find a variety of styles in a full-size range, everything from extra, extra small to 4X. So recently I was browsing around on ModCloth and I found this whole line of retro-inspired swimwear. And I found one that was absolutely gorgeous. It's my favorite. It's the Deep End Diva one-piece swimsuit in Nautical, which is this adorable blue suit with white stripes and the perfect red trim and straps. I love it and I can't wait to get my hands on it. To get 15% off of your purchase of $100 or more, go to modcloth.com. That's M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter promo code ART at checkout. Hurry because this offer will expire on September 1st, 2018. Again, to get 15% off of your purchase of $100 or more, go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter promo code ART. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Welcome back to Our Curious. Adelaide Labiguiard moved through her career with grace and ease, up until the revolution brought things to a significant slowdown. But much of that slowdown can be reasoned by the fact that she never left her home country while it roiled through change and violence. Personally, I wonder how much of her career would have continued, or even grown, had she left France and traveled among Europe. Because this is exactly what happened to another impressive French artist, during that same period, and history seems to have better remembered her name. This is Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, the painter we've referenced a number of times in the course of this podcast, and whose life we discussed in our third episode, The Semi-Charmed Life of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. Go back and listen to that episode to get the nitty-gritty on Vigée Lebrun's life and times in full, including more detailed descriptions and analyses of some of her most famous works of art. But as a quick refresher, here are the bullet points of Vigée Lebrun's biography. Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun had access to the art world basically from birth, given that she was the daughter of a painter and was encouraged from an early age to pursue art. She took drawing lessons with her dad as a child and would paint on any surface she could find, including her walls of her house and her own school books. Her formal training began as a teenager, and at age 19, she was admitted to the Academy of St. Luke, where she exhibited her work professionally for the very first time. 
two years later, she married Jean-Baptiste Pierre Lebrun, who wasn't the best husband in the world, but was a connected art dealer who exposed her to new and exciting worlds of artists, connoisseurs, and collectors. This proved to be a significant foot in the door for Vigée Lebrun, and then she used her charm and social connections to continue to propel herself forward and upward. And upward she went. Fast. In 1778, she received one of the cushiest and highest profile jobs possible when she was appointed the official painter of Queen Marie Antoinette, and the two became very close friends. In 1783, on the basis of her works, but also with the heavy lobbying of the queen herself, Vigée Lebrun was admitted to the Royal Academy, one of the three other women besides Adelaide Labiguillard to be allowed in that very same year. But unlike Labiguillard, whose career suffered during and after the revolution, Vichy Lebrun's continued to flourish. Part of this, though, was because she chose to flee Paris in the wake of the revolution, as she feared for her life since she was so closely connected to the unpopular and soon-to-be-beheaded queen. Thanks once more to her charms, her social skills, and her very evident talent, she managed to build a clientele of aristocrats all throughout Europe, painting portraits from Rome and Milan to Vienna and St. Petersburg. When she returned to Paris in 1802, she reconnected with many of her contacts from before the revolution, found clients old and new, and continued to paint for the remainder of her life. And in 1842, she died at the ripe old age of 86. When Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Adelaide Labiguillard were both accepted to the Royal Academy at the same time, they were immediately pinpointed as the stronger of the bunch of women allowed in by official decree. And because they were promptly ID'd as the quote-unquote really good ones, they were looped together, grouped in the public imagination, for better or for worse. They traveled in many of the same artistic circles, and besides the Royal Academy connection, they were both also part of the Academy of St. Luke. And certainly, for the early parts of their careers, the similarity in their clientele didn't really help to differentiate them. Both were closely tied to the monarchy and held super high-profile positions as portraitists to women directly related to the king. And, oh yeah, they were both women, so automatically they must be really alike, right? From the outside looking in, there was a strong sense of a rivalry between these two artists that proved to be a prominent aspect of the way that they and their work was received by Parisian society. It was played up, dissected by other artists and their compatriots. But were Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Adelaide Labiguillard really rivals? Was their client base pre-revolution so chock-full of rich people clamoring for immortalization so no one was hurting for money or opportunity? Or were these women really fighting over the same commissions and cash? Or were Paris and Versailles truly not big enough for the both of them? I am going to cut to the chase really quickly here. Were Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Adelaide Labiguillard actually fervent enemies and artistic rivals? No. No way. But they were declared to be so. Pitted against one another, these women, their work, and their personal lives were highly scrutinized. Their talent was questioned, and they were ultimately made out to be enemies by the court of public opinion. Vigée Lebrun was seen as the most successful of the post-revolutionary years, while Adelaide Labiguillard struggled a bit further. Their career differences, though, were no more than a reflection of their relationship to one another than anything else. But rivals, they were made out to be. The big question is, why? Okay, fair warning here, but I'm about to jump into some feminist theory. 
By no means is this man bashing, but it has to be taken into consideration that a sexist agenda was put on these two women. In her article, Self-Portraits, Portraits of Self, Adelaide Labiguiard and Elizabeth V.J. Lebrun, Women Artists of the 18th Century, author Catherine R. Montfort brings up a very important point, which we've already touched on earlier in this episode. And that's the fact that these women earned hugely important positions as court painters, which meant that their male counterparts didn't get those same positions. And that also meant that there was a fair amount of jealousy and even anger over their success, which some men felt was unwarranted. A woman shouldn't have that important commission, you can hear someone saying. I should have been the official portraitist to the queen slash king slash king's brother slash fill in the blank. With this jealousy and bitterness came the inevitable backlash towards these women artists. As Montfort notes, sexism manifested itself in three distinguishable ways. Attacks on their moral and ethical character, the questioning of their talent, and ambiguously phrased compliments that were actually more insulting than anything. To address the first point, rumors and vicious gossip swirled around them, particularly in Paris art circles. Vijay Lebrun was accused of having multiple affairs with her clients and was even suspected of being in a scandalous lesbian relationship with Queen Marie Antoinette herself. Though that rumor was meant to put the queen in a bad light as much or even more so than the artist herself. For her part, Labie Guillard was accused of having an affair with her former mentor, Francois-André Vincent. Now, this one is a little trickier, because that rumor may or may not have been true, considering the fact that Labie Guillard did eventually go on to marry him. At the time, though, Labie Guillard was already married to her first husband, and that union was like that of Vijay Lebrun's. It was… meh. A starter marriage. And when divorce was finally granted for women in France in the last years of the 18th century, she did move on fairly quickly to Vincent. So regardless of whether or not she had an affair with him prior to their marriage, the fact still stands that she was bombarded for something that had nothing to do at all with her career. Both artists had to deal with these personal accusations as a consequence of their professional success. Not that they weren't attacked from the professional angle too, which brings us to the second manifestation of rampant sexism directed at these two artists. You may recall from our earlier episode this season on Judith Leister that that artist's work was so consistently good that all the way into the end of the 19th century, scholars and historians were mistaking Leister's work as being completed by men like Jan Molinar and Franz Hals, her own rival. The same thing happened, both in their lifetimes and far after, with both Labie Guillard and Vijay Lebrun. Both women were accused of having male artists either help them complete their work or having these men create their paintings whole hog. For Labie Guillard, her implied helper was Vincent, naturally, and Vichy Lebrun's was a slew of various men, including a man by the name of Menagio, although it's very interesting here to note that Jacques-Louis David seems to have stepped up to the plate for Vichy in this manner, sniffing, quote, it is quite extraordinary that Menagio paints so well when he paints for Madame Lebrun and makes his own works so badly. To be fair, historian Dorothy Johnson writes that Menageau was one of David's own bitter rivals, so this point is truly directed more at bringing Menageau down than buttressing up Vijay Lebrun. But hey, at least he stood up for her a little bit. The bottom line, though, was this. As artists, they couldn't possibly be talented enough to create their own works of art. Lastly, there was the third point of very grudging contention. 
In the rare moments where the paintings of Vigée Lebrun and Le Bigard were noted as being good works, any praise that was directed at them was given a spin that seemed contingent upon their womanhood. Wow, their colleagues would note, she paints women so well because she's a woman. Or, look, see how well she's managed that still life of flowers in the corner of that picture. Obviously, women know how to paint flowers since flowers are a girl thing. When Vigée Lebrun, for example, created her entry piece for the Royal Academy, an ambitious work called Peace Bringing Back Abundance, she aimed to paint a scene in the manner of history painting, that highest and most esteemed level of artistic creation that presented grand historical and mythological subject matter. And by most accounts, the work was good, really good. And her male counterparts were shocked that she was able to formulate a painting in that way. Their praise was grudging and boiled down to exclamations about how incredible it was that a woman could paint such a scene. It was the 18th century artistic equivalent of, hey, you run pretty well for a girl. All in all, these sexist claims were used against these two artists to undermine or discredit their successful careers. And it was these claims that undergirded a sense of false rivalry between them. Let's put it this way. You can work to bring someone down from their pedestal on your own, or you can pit that someone against a so-called enemy and have that rivalry do the hard work for you. So, fellow artists, men mainly to be sure, found various ways to defame Le Bigard and Vigée Lebrun, and devising a rivalry was yet another way to do this and to distract audiences from their natural talent. Pitting them against each other via rude gossip and slanderous pamphlets drew more attention to rumor than to fact which meant that all Paris was more interested in hearing the latest salacious news and less in studying the intricacies of a portrait by Adelaide Labiguillard, for example. After all, it's far more entertaining to read a tabloid about a beleaguered actor than to see their latest indie film. Despite their successful careers, Adelaide Labiguillard and Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun were forced to face difficulties that were inherently rooted in sexism. Women artists were certainly anomalies in French society in the 18th century, and when they did emerge, their talent and validity as artists were constantly called into question, as we have seen today. Rather than celebrate La Bigard and Vigée Lebrun as individual portraitists with remarkable talent, critics and other artists not only compared them to each other, but used these comparisons to divide them, with hopes of bringing them down. Fortunately, modern-day historians and scholars have discovered the truth behind this quote-unquote rivalry, and with this truth, we are now able to appreciate them individually as pioneering artists with a long range of influence. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it's the tale of two best friends who were there for each other through thick and thin, through strife and scandal, until one of them gives the other a gift that can't be overlooked. That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research assistance by Adria Gunter. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our amazing new logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Anchor Light is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces. 
AnchorLite encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com and thank you once again to the generous folks at AnchorLite for funding this third season. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is totally tax deductible. Follow the donate links on our website for more. As always, you can also go to our website for images, information, and links to all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. You can contact us there, email us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com, or find us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell anyone you want about the show. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in rivalries of art history.